Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Welcome to the book club on Football Ramble Presents. I'm Kate Mason. I'm Jim Campbell. And today we're not just going to read a great book together. We're also going to change your life. Joining us in the studio is a man who was instrumental in the England football team's run to the final of the Euros. Michael saves! Kane is there to follow in! Wembley is alive and thundering with noise! He's been called Gareth Southgate's secret weapon and he's helped restore what the England football team means to the men who turn out for their country and to the fans who follow them too. Just wanted to take the time to say thank you to everybody for the incredible support we've received. We hope that we've represented you in the right way. If England win the World Cup this November, they may well be his most famous success story. But Owen Eastwood developed his understanding of what it means to be a team while commissioned to work with Team GB, the South African cricketers and the command group of NATO. He's brought in by these widely varied organisations to help forge a sense of identity and togetherness as one of the most in-demand performance coaches in the world. 
over lockdown, he decided to share his theories more widely in the form of his book, Belonging, the Ancient Code of Togetherness. We're delighted to have Owen Eastwood in the Ramble studio with us today. Owen, welcome. Thank you. Thanks so much for coming in from the Cotswolds, which is the core, of course, of part of your um, your methodology, which we'll come on to. Um, look, you, you, in a book, which we loved, by Absolutely. the way, yeah, you break down the kind of key areas of of what all teams, what all humans need to feel comfortable in teams, that this sense of belonging. And thinking about the England football team in the kind of pre-Gareth era, if that's what we're going to term it. Um, the relevance seems pretty obvious to anybody who's followed that team. What did you make of the culture of England when you first showed up there in 2016? I think it was very tactical and technical. Mm-hmm. I think the piece that seemed missing to me was that fundamentally this is a group of human beings who are going to have an incredible amount of... Um, scrutiny on them, a lot of pressure on them, huge expectations on them. So it's actually quite a scary thing to do. And when I actually spoke to some of the players, I went, I, I interviewed players going back to the 1950s as part of my research for this, just to try and understand the culture all the way back. And there's no getting around it. It is exciting and scary to play for your country, particularly in a tournament. So what, what was interesting to me was the culture didn't seem to be reducing the stress for the England team actually seemed to be increasing it. Mm. And so what we could see quite early on was there's actually a lot of things you could do to reduce the stress levels, reduce the anxiety, and particularly in between games, and actually conserve a hell of a lot of energy, that which is, in my view, being leaked by people feeling a bit isolated and and that sort of real lack of a inspiring culture that they felt connected to. So you, you talk a lot in the book about a concept called Whakapapa, which is um, a big part of that is, is exactly what you're talking about now, isn't it? It's going back through different generations and kind of extracting the meaning of, of kind of how you got to where you are. Do you want to talk, take us through that as a concept a little? Yeah, the, when I first got involved, um, Wayne Rooney was the captain and I went up to Carrington and met with him early on and uh, had a fantastic conversation with him. He was very impressive. I was, I was impressed. Um, although one thing he said, which I challenged, was that we don't talk about what it means to play for England. We expect people to figure that out for themselves. Mm. And and that's not really my approach. Mm. <laughs> I feel like whether it's part of a family, part of a nation, part of a team, we we actually want our leaders to explain why this is special and, and what it is that we actually belong to. Is so, it partly kind of proving that they know as well is a key part of that? You know, it's a real challenge in professional sport is making sure that the badge on the front of the shirt is more important than the name on the back. And if you have a vacuum around who we are and what our identity is and who we play for, then people will become selfish. It's pretty. It's as easy as that. So the, the lack of a story of who we are, the lack of a connection to if we were great, how that would impact on other people, mm. to me it reinforced this idea that and, and people actually explained when I first got involved that the culture was a fend for yourself culture when you came into the England camp. You know, there wasn't a lot of arms around you and compassion and, and, and mentoring. It was, you know, can you hack it here? And they, the belonging really was to the club cliques rather than the England team. Mm. So you, your sense of belonging came from being with your Liverpool teammates or your Manchester United teammates 
So again, that's not great for team cohesion and building trust and togetherness. So, you know, just look, not looking at it from a football point of view, but just more from a, um, a helicopter point of view around human beings, felt like there's huge opportunities to strengthen the culture and therefore strengthen the environment they could compete from. One of the people interviewed in the book is Michael Owen, and he talks about the, the golden generation essentially reverting to type so as not to get vilified in the press. And I suppose that's what happens, right? If you don't have that, if you don't speak about that culture and, and what you want to do going forward and what, what what the meaning of where you've come from is, it's very easy to just slip back into that negative um that negative style, really, of just sort of kind of hoping for the best by doing stuff that you've always done, just mindlessly, essentially, which is what they used to do, wasn't it? Yeah, really? for sure. I mean, we all, we all remember it. And, and this, what you're talking about, the kind of conflict between club sides, which we don't see now. No. Uh, I think a big part of it is if you don't have a powerful story of who we are that you talk about internally, then that vacuum will be filled by what people outside of the team say you are. And you know, and they say a hell of a lot. They, they <laughs> said a hell of a lot, and they're actually very consistent about it, which was that you're selfish, you don't really care about this, you're mentally weak, you're not, can't take penalties, you're technically inferior to the opposition. These are literally what the media yeah. and others were saying outside of the circle, but... It wasn't an internal narrative to compete with that. And people like Michael, and I talked to other players in the golden generation, he said the brutal reality was we started to believe a lot of that. Which is, it must be a really difficult thing mentally because getting called up to play for your country is a huge honour. Is is really, for a lot of people, is the pinnacle of, of the sport. And then you actually it's like you graduate into this terrible atmosphere where it's... Like your success is immediately met with a lot of negativity and a lot of a lot of reasons why you're you're actually rubbish. It must be well. Actually, just pick up picking up on that point. I, I wouldn't overstate that the environment was was toxic. Toxic, for example, I wouldn't use that word. I think it was. I think you wouldn't. I, sorry, you wouldn't say no, it was toxic. I, no, no, I think there were, there would have been moments and pockets where that may have applied. But generally, I think you know, people like Roy Hodgson, there was some, you know, some good managers and I think the environment was was fine. Mm. I'm just thinking, I, I'm a performance coach, so I'm looking at it from a performance point of view. I could see that, from what I heard, these guys were marinating in stress and anxiety and there wasn't a great relief from it in terms of the culture. In fact, in many ways, the culture was hyping it up. Um, you know, I think they were in South Africa, they were sort of locked away, they were, you know, and we that feeling of isolation just increases people's stress and anxiety. And when you're stressed and anxious, you just burn off energy. Yeah. And then you play on the field and people look at you and go, well, they look, <laughs> they look listless. Why are they not trying? I've had this with other teams. I work with Harlequins Rugby Club. I'm on the board there now. And, you know, we had an amazing season last season when they came through and won the championship. But at the start of the season, when the team were playing poorly, mm. people didn't think they were properly conditioned because their energy levels were so poor. It wasn't that. It was that they were the, the working environment was as stressful and exhausting so uh, you know I, I wouldn't dress it up as a terrible culture you wouldn't mm. want your son to go into I, I just think from a performance point of view there were lots of areas which they could have done better it was not optimal but I mean you know and we've had uh, Jamie Carragher in that seat uh, where you are and then all sorts of people talked about how they just didn't like to go away with England yeah. whereas you look at now mm. um 
at time of recording, Jack Grealish has just been saying, there was a big clip of him saying about how, you know, he's picked up on the fact that England are creating an environment with lots of little things mm. to help him feel comfortable. And they all and at see... At home as well was at the home, they phrase all, he used. All these players, you know, you see them bonding together and, and it's like they almost in some cases, perhaps the Manchester United players, they, they prefer to be with England mm. almost than their club size, which would have seemed impossible yeah. 10, 15 years ago. And th- and this is your work. Mm. A lot of this is your work. Well, they, they, they are definitely signs and signals that culture is in a strong place when Jack says comments like that and other players reinforce that. It's not... Um, it's not what it's all about, but it's the fact that they want to be there. They're not finding excuses to not be there. You know, one thing I, I remember from doing my research seven years ago was I had a player say to me, a former player say to me that when they got knocked out of, one, of the World Cup, I think it was the one in, Brazil, uh, in Japan, I think he said, if I had have come onto the bus and, and been with the team straight after that, you would have been convinced they'd won that game. And I, I, why would you, they were so chill. Why would you say that? And he said, because in some ways, for a lot of players, there was a sense of relief oh. that this, for you personally, the ordeal had finished without you missing a penalty or being sent off, right? So you mm. were not going to have your life ruined by the experience because you avoided being the one people would point their finger at. And, you know, that was a, it's sad, isn't it? A very sad mindset for people to have that, if this doesn't go well, this could be terrible for me and my family. And 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 that's but the, the, those mindsets and that framing of playing in World Cup, to me, had wasn't being challenged enough in a positive way. Yeah. Um. And you know, Gareth has done a brilliant job of explaining that this is just amazing adventure we're going on. This is a, this will be a great experience in your life. We're going there to compete. You get no guarantees. There's no such thing as fairy tales. There's no fate here. But if we stick together, enjoy ourselves and give it everything, we actually got a good enough team to compete with anyone. Don't get me wrong, I wouldn't overstate my role. I'm in the background helping, giving them ideas, challenging them from time to time, helping them set themselves up for tournaments um, and and just keep it fresh and interesting. And But we're all on the same page, which is great. But perhaps even just having you doing that is part of the reason that the FA could pick someone like, or could trust someone like Gareth to, to be the head coach? Well, uh, no, I, 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 I wouldn't <laughs> well, no, because, think of myself in that way. Well, so to, dig, to dig into a bit further into what you're talking about, the idea is about um, the idea is about how people can, if they have a sense of a sense of trust, if if there aren't cliques in an organisation, if they feel safe and secure, and everyone's kind of pulling together, then they will generate their best possible performance. And you, I think, recently have said as well that you don't particularly want to talk about high performance. You know, it's about creating Mm. the best environment for people to work together. And I think previously it was commoditized, the England manager job. We get someone in, you know, Sven and Eriksson, you get him in, well, he's going to, he's going to just bloody deliver, same as all of these players should. Who cares what the culture's like? He's being paid the money to do the job. Yeah, no, that's that's very fair. I, I think the you sit in clubs, teams all the time. Um, they don't really stand for something. Mm. They what they stand for is appointing a coach who that needs to deliver in the short term. And whatever their philosophy, their style of play is, fine, great. Let's do that. That's who we are. 
And I, I don't understand, you know, tribes and teams and organisations in that way. I, I think that we, an identity story needs to be something that, as we talked about, the, that idea of whakapapa, this idea that we're part of an unbreakable chain of people to our very first ancestor, but also this chain of people with their arms interlocked to the, into the future, the end of time. And the idea that the sun first shone on our first ancestors and slowly moves down this line of people. And so that w- when we're wearing the shirt, sun's on us. And so we want to leave a legacy. You know, we want to inherit all these great things from the people who came before us, our sense of identity, our values, our rituals and traditions. But we want to leave our own mark. And, you know, Gareth has used our language. He, he, every tournament he talks about, we're going to write our own chapter. And that's that's where our ideas are consistent. That's it's his language, but you know that's the same idea that the sun's shining on us. Let's do something, and so so that, that that's how human beings, I think, think of themselves as, as part of your family, as part of your community, as part of part of your nation, your religion. So the idea that actually none of that matters—that someone's going to come in today and tell us, and we're going to sit down passively and listen, tell this is who you are, this is the values that you should care about. This is a style of play we're going to change, which is completely different than what it was last time. I, I, I don't understand that really. And I think as, as leaders, whether it's at board level, should be better than that, should be able to say, this is who we are. This is the fundamentals of the things that we believe in. By all means, coach your socks off in your own way with your own personality and evolve the style of play, of course. But there are some fundamental things that we stand for. So, you know, when Wayne Rooney made the comment about people should figure it out, Actually, what's clear from this group is they enjoy stories mm. of people who came before them. You know, it's 150 years this year since the first English team. Um, and now we've connected them to that original team. Mm. Um, we've, they've seen Bobby Moore not as an icon, but as a, a player who is very composed, brings the ball out from the back, and they can emulate that. So there's lots of ways that that three lions just has a very deeper meaning for them than it's had for others. That's a really interesting point because within within our culture, Bobby Moore almost seems like a more like a statue that happened to be a person first. You know what I mean? And like an an idea rather than an actual footballer. And I guess that becomes quite dangerous if you start believe if you start mythologizing things, believing in those things, and then comparing yourself to a myth. That can't be useful. But um, yeah. the idea of Fakapapa comes up through the book a lot, and it's a beautiful idea, and it's really clearly expressed, and and it's it's lovely, and it's something we can all relate to. One thing I wonder about it, what happens if you if you have a dressing room where you maybe get a few individuals who don't buy into the idea or don't buy into ideas that you're putting forward? How do you how do you address that and how do teams deal with that if there are if there are some influences that are kind of butting heads with with the general culture in the dressing room? Well, a friend of mine, Stuart Lancaster, is a rugby coach, and I call this the Lancaster principle. Um, and I think it's a good insight into teams, and that is in any given team, there will be outliers at one end who whatever you or a coach says, I'll never buy into it. For whatever reason, whether it's someone in their ear or their own bias, they don't like the coach. They're never going to like the coach. They're never going to buy into it. Then you have other outliers at the other end who no matter what he says or she says, they will buy into it. They love them. They just think they're the greatest thing ever. And what Stuart said, and it's a great piece of advice, is that a good leader will not overfocus on either ends of the spectrum. They'll focus on the people in the middle because they can move either side. 
So yeah, I've been with teams where there are a few skeptics around why we're spending time talking about this, and I respect that, but I don't obsess on it. I'm not trying to convince them. Okay. Um, so that's a part of it, is just keeping calm and keeping focused on the f- most people want to feel a sense of belonging to something, but they need it explained what they belong to. That once you have that sense of belonging, it actually reduces people's anxiety. It, it creates conditions where people can be more trustful of other people in the environment, be more vulnerable. So we know the benefits of having that sense of belonging. So we do the work. The second part is that it's not really about the history. It feels like it is because we're talking about teams before us and 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 what's been passed. So it feels like it's sort of talking about history, but it's not really what it's really talking about is the sun is shining on us right now, and that is something that everyone is interested in. So you know, with England team with the World Cup in Qatar, they're not going to spend hours reflecting on previous World Cups. They just like it contextually to set up. Now it's our chapter to write, and everybody is locked into that. Mm. So I think the, the idea of fuck-up is interesting because a lot of people do think, oh, well, it's a lot of investment in talking about the history of a team. Is that really useful? It's a, it's all a setup for the moment is ours. What are we going to do with it? And let's just frame it in the most positive, optimistic way that we can, understanding that whatever we do will leave a legacy. And, you know, over the Euros last year, the team left a legacy. <laughs> they They... In lots of ways, they made the first final, but also they gave people some real special evenings of high tension, high entertainment. <laughs> sure with, did. <laughs> you know, four knockout games or whatever it was <laughs> to get there. Um, but that's when people had been socially isolated for two years, but they got together and had those moments. And that was explicitly discussed as part of the setup of the Euros, is that we not only about outcome, we want our people to have this precious time with their friends and their family, watch us and feel English and be proud of what they see. So th- this is ways that you can think about the sun's shining on us. What do we want to achieve? And um, yeah, I think I don't find it players disinterested in that ever. The community of the England team, but also just the community of England. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And I mean, and Gareth Southgate wrote that incredible letter as well yeah. to to kind of identify his philosophy. Or mm. yeah, I thought that was the most unbelievable document mm. during that time as well, because mm. it's it's exactly a mm. What you were talking about is the top. It's identifying what we're all about and telling, leading the country mm. in a sense. Um, yes. It's very different than a, a coach who's saying we need to win seven games, <laughs> yeah. and but we're only going to take it one game at a time, and we're just going to train and we're going to do the tactical meetings, and then we're going to go in our room and <laughs> stress out. Yeah, um, he's a different approach. Yeah, which I I think it's not based on my opinion. I think that the research reaffirms that is gets a bit of performance out of a team when you're able to say that let's play in a certain style, let's have an impact on people, let's allow them to look at us and th- feel proud to be English and what would that actually be like? And players have enjoyed it. They've, they're proper human beings of their own opinions and they want to stand for something more than just you know be these chess players on the football field, in my view. The tough thing, of course, about the next World Cup is that it is in Qatar. And I wonder, um, having lived there for two years myself, I wonder what impact that has when thinking about that on the ambitions of the England team. I know that, you know, it's been reported and it's been spoken about that the England team have have talked about some of the contentious points about why, about it being in Qatar. And I think, 
I don't know if this is a leap or not, but you know, you you've spoken about working with the South African cricket team and how they kind of how you try to help them work together off the back of you know being an apartheid living in an apartheid country. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I just wonder how how that fits together. It it, it seems like you can't um, ignore the geography of where this World Cup that you're preparing for is going to take place and and some of the issues there. And I just wonder how that fits together with this concept of this team that's so kind of, um, you know, has has such a deep sense of itself and, and a kind of righteous sense of wanting to be, uh, to be different and to be standing for what's right. Mm. Well, you've just explained beautifully what a powerful sense of identity is is that they can go to Qatar and be themselves. And they themselves actually is not only a good football team, but a team that really believes in diversity and inclusion. They've created an environment within that team where anybody from any background, any identity story they may have of their own, will feel a sense of belonging and feel accepted and feel they'll be treated fairly by not only the coach and the staff, but the other players. So they've, they've lived it. They're not just preaching. They've lived it. They've created that environment. It's a completely inclusive, even to the point where Gareth has a player leadership group. He's consulting with the player leaders. They have an input into tactics, into training, which is not the case in all club teams by any means. So that's another example of inclusivity. Um, they also feel strongly that England as a nation has still got you know, um, room to move and becoming a more inclusive country. It's a very diverse country, but it could be more inclusive. And they've stood up for certain things around it. So the beautiful thing, from my point of view, is that you don't have to go there with placards. You just be yourself. They personify diversity and inclusion, which is something that you know other countries can look at and compare themselves to. And, and So that's how I feel. And I think Gareth said that last week, that if we turn up and be ourselves, then that's a strong message in itself. You don't think it endorses the environment by such like a great thing? Or by them being there themselves, I'm not advocating a boycott particularly, but you know, you know what I mean. Like, there's a kind yeah. of marketing potential. Perhaps that's not really something well, that matters in in this line of work. Yeah, I mean, that's for an FA, I suppose, to to work through those issues. But um, what what I do like is the fact that the players have a voice. They they are allowed yeah. their views and they're allowed to to um, communicate them. They're not being gagged. And that, that, that's probably a moving on from the past as well. So I enjoy that. So it'd be very interesting, even from my point of view, I've, I don't have any strong views on what they should and shouldn't do. I'm not about judging them. So I'm, I'm interested, interested in Harry Kane's comments, interested in what the players say and, and, and how they treat you know, that part of the challenge in the, in the World Cup. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. 
That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. We wanted to talk about, um, I'm moving perhaps to more club sides and, mm-hmm. and your views on how those things. Um, you brought up Jim already, Michael Owen. His, he talks about when he went to Real Madrid mm. and no one told him anything about it and or where he fitted in. They were just like, on you go. And in fact, in someone else we've had on book club, Simon Cooper, who wrote Soconomics, he, he talks about all sorts of club sides that just bring players in for loads of money and then are like, why the hell aren't you performing? Look, come mm. on, you've, you know, you're being paid loads. Mm. Um, how would you... Is it exactly the same setup in a in a club team? Would you would you approach it in the same way when trying to deal with these kinds of issues? Yeah, well, this is just this is all about groups of human beings being put together to go and try and achieve something. That's all that it is. So, you know, there's an insight from the English Institute of Sport a few years ago, which was that seventy percent of human behaviour is determined by whatever environment you're in. And I've seen this in other sports. I've, I, I was um, working with a team which had supposedly the number one player in the world came and played for them and completely under-delivered from his own point of view, but also from the fans and the media and everybody. But one thing that people didn't appreciate was the previous environment he'd been in was absolutely outstanding, incredible, high standards, high work ethic, wonderful player leaders. And then he came to this other team, (laughs) which wasn't. Trying and, to figure it out, and, and, it's, and, it, and it's still trying to figure it out, and um, and I saw him in that moment, and it was no surprise to me, and it shouldn't be surprised to anybody that their performance completely fell away because the environment they were in was a bit less integrity, a bit less qu- quality standards. You know, whether you trained hard was not, you know, um, at the same level as in the, each day as it was at the other club the quality of coaching and, and, and the quality of peers. So that that's a really important point we should never forget is that we are incredibly malleable to our environments. Mm. And all of us three here, if we go into a high standards, high integrity environment, the best version of ourselves will no doubt flourish. But if we go into a low integrity, low work ethic, low standards environment, unfortunately the worst of ourselves will probably come out. Mm. I've seen a lot of that. <laughs> um, so a, a thing that um, we we discussed briefly earlier, actually, um, while we're on the subject of club football, is uh, Man United, and they're a club at the moment who you know they have a in terms of an us story, in terms of a history, you yeah. can't, there aren't many organisations on the planet that have a more attractive and, and more storied history. But for whatever reason, things are dysfunctional. Things aren't working. So I appreciate it's very difficult, like without mm. being inside the dressing room and knowing what's happening there. But in terms, of, if you were given the brief of of fixing Man United, essentially, how how would you approach that? What what, what do you what what looks to be wrong from the outside? Would you say? Well, for, yeah, that's a great point. You never really understand any environment unless you're in there. I've, I've learned that for sure. So this is more as an observer, but. 
Um, I think the first thing I would address is it looks like it's a coach is king culture. That whoever is a coach, they are the king. They In them resides what we believe and what we think, what we value, how we want to play, how we think about our academy, how we think about all of these things. And so we all stand back passively and allow them to lead and coach in that way. And then when it's not successful, because it hasn't been since Ferguson really has it, then they are sacked. And then we revert to the next version of Coach's King, where the next person comes in. And they come in with a completely different philosophy, different beliefs, value different things, want different types of players. And then we completely passively buy into that and see what happens. And, then, and, and yeah, I mean, it's I'm not a fan of any particular club, but I actually feel a little bit depressed watching them not be able to break through that and just stand for something. And I understand when you've got a board of a lot of commercial people and, and, and not necessarily understand these things, but get some performance people on the board. Um, and very simple exercise. What's our story? What do we really believe in? What style of play is true to us? When we are great, what does it look like? You know, does it look like homegrown players? Because for some teams, that's really important to them. Others, it's not. If you look at the consistency between Busby and Ferguson, there was this high tempo. There was these homegrown players coming through the academy. There was this the use of the width of the pitch. There were some things you could say where there was a continuity mm. to the, who they were, what they believed in, what their values were. And that seems to have been completely lost. So... You know, Barcelona, the New Zealand All Blacks rugby team, and in fact with Harlequins last year, we did the same thing. We actually capture in like a 20-minute presentation, this is who we are. This is our story. When we are great, this is what it actually looks like. These are the things we really truly believe in. And then we give it to all of the candidates for the head coach, as the All Blacks do, Barcelona does, and say, you need to speak to us as to how you would bring that to life in your own way. So we're not asking you to inv- throw your philosophy on us. We're asking you, can you be the custodian and driver of who we are? And, you know, with Harlequins, for example, we recruited a New Zealand coach and, you know, we explained we have a high-tempo type of game. That's how we like to play. Our fans love it. So you need to be able to coach the team to play that way. We're unconventional. So there's no point you just being completely risk-averse and attritional. We need a coach who's comfortable with the players taking some risks and but also off the field doing some unconventional things. So very explicit. That's who we are. These are the things we believe in, and this is what our fans need. And then you coach out from there. It, it's not really complicated, is it? But, <laughs> but yeah. No, I, I mean, it, it, it isn't complicated. But this, at the same time, that the coach is king idea is so prevalent, isn't it? It's so mm. it's it, it almost it's almost invisible because it seems immovable, you know. Yeah. And, and actually, you do need to take. Uh, as you say, sort of like the almost the bird's eye view the, or the helicopter view, as you put it, of, of these things before you can realise, actually, maybe this is standing in the way of us getting anywhere. It feels as though, in fact, United, from what you're saying then, was were reaching towards that with this Ole Gunnar, when they appointed Ole Gunnar so, mm. Solskjaer because, but unfortunately, he was just trying to be this in just his own, as one man, his whole, you know, constant, we piss out of it a little bit on Ramble, but like, you know, just 
constantly being like, this is Manchester United, yeah. you can't be playing like that. Um, but he didn't have the the support, I mm. guess, or perhaps the experience as well. That's a great point. You know, when Harlequins asked me to help them um, start last season, the performance director approached me, but I said, just based on my experience, if we want to really do this, capture all of this, then the board needs to drive it. Mm. So we actually convened a meeting of, of the board, everybody, exactly your point, is there's no point just one or two people trying to create this. It has to be perfect alignment. The owners, the board, the CEO, the executive team, the coaching staff, the playing group, and all the other staff, everyone needs to be signed up to, this is how we're going to go. It is hopeless for a coach. I don't know the situation with United and Ole, but it is hopeless having one person who is trying to... um, facilitate cultural transformation. That's, that By definition, that doesn't work. So it needs to be a piece of work. Just slow down, take time out, reflect on these things. You've got Alex Ferguson who's part of it. He would probably be the most authentic voice around a lot of this because he, not only what he did, but he understood very much the history of the team. And Michael Owen, you know, when I interviewed him, he said that when he first joined United and he was being recruited, Sir Alex had him to his home, sat him down, and told them the story of Manchester United. I mean, there, there, there it goes. Mm. So somewhere down the the transmission of that story that Michael Owen got in Sir Alex's living room has been lost. And so there's confusion and inconsistency. That's what it looks like from the outside. And I say this with the best possible intentions. I wish them, absolutely wish them well. Um, I think they're a really special club. And they mean a lot to me in the 80s watching this in New Zealand as a kid. They were quite a glamour team and I, they used to entertain me and I'd love to see them just get back on track. Do you see a particular club now as being the kind of, as doing, without you necessarily being involved, as being in the league, one that's doing this really well? My, my immediate thought seems to be Liverpool. Seems to be like they've, they've really mm. um, matched their sense of the us story with, with mm. Jurgen Klopp and with the kind of authenticity that he brings. but Yeah, that's the one that would spring to mind. Again, without being in their environment, you know, it's very difficult to tell, but that idea of the sun shining on us. You know, sometimes people think of the, the history of, of Liverpool or history of these teams as, as heavy baggage for players. There's, it creates this huge expectation, this burden on them. Um, and that's why the clever framing by a coach like Gareth or Jurgen Klopp really plays a role because what they're saying is, there's no heavy baggage. You belong to something really, really special, and we're going to actually bother to tell you the story of this because it's pretty friggin' cool. <laughs> but the main thing is the sun's on us. Have a look around. We've got a pretty good team, haven't we? <laughs> Why don't we go and compete hard and see what we can do and see what people in the future will say about us? Mm. So that's taken all the pressure off it and just saying let's go have an adventure and let's go play hard and let's commit to each other and sacrifice certain things to give this the best chance So. So I, I get a distinct impression he's done a brilliant job of unburdening them from their past. Where this came from originally, I think, you say in the book, um, is so you have this, you part Maori. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this is a Maori concept, I, I believe, that you've then kind of built out and adopted. And you, when you were 12, you mm-hmm. asked for your tribe. You wanted to understand mm-hmm. what it was. Can you Can you explain to us a bit more about that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, when, well, when I was five, my father passed away suddenly. 
Um, and so and our, our children, we was 12-year-old and 10-year-old brothers. I was five and my sister was three. So, yeah, he, he was half English and half Maori, the indigenous people of New Zealand. And so, yeah, obviously that was a harrowing thing. It's, and still was traumatic for us all this time later, to be honest. But my siblings were able to sort of set their own identity and crack on. <laughs> but I, I wasn't quite in the same way. There's something about me. Maybe I had a, a deeper need to belong than them. I'm not sure. But so I felt I was part of the English people and, and the Maori people, but actually at the same time I was completely disconnected from them. You know, I didn't have any interaction with them. My father was an only child, so there wasn't family around in that way. So it, it really, really frustrated me. And so when I was 12, I wrote to our Maori tribe um, and I... I just wrote this letter just to say that this is my father, this is my grandmother Rose. Um, can you tell me if I belong to this tribe, basically? And, you know, my son's 14 now. I can't really imagine him, you know, spending a Saturday <laughs> afternoon writing a letter like that. So it just shows to me how much it was really burning in me. But um, they wrote a, yeah, an amazing letter back, beautiful letter back, just saying, you know, we know who you are and you belong here. And And they... The the fucker papa is a Polynesian idea, not just a Maori idea, and actually it's wider than that. I think it's Chinese culture, North American and indigenous cultures have very similar ideas. But the idea, they just gave me a piece of paper which had twenty five generations of my ancestors, <laughs> and just a name. But with each name, there was a story. And this is a a culture that didn't have a written language until the missionaries created in the eighteen hundreds. Yeah, and then they explained the idea of fucker papa that we're part of this unbreakable line of people to their origin and into the future, the end of time. And, um, and that absolutely gave me a, probably like a euphoric sense of belonging from, from feeling disconnected to someone saying you belong and then, and then introducing you to your relatives, your ancestors with these amazing stories. And, you know, there's a funny one because we talked about earlier about Bobby Moore you know, when I ever, I'd, I had a lovely afternoon a few years ago where I sat with Arsene Wenger in his office just a beautiful man and very, very kind of him to, to do that. And he said something which really stuck with me, which was, um, and this is when he was Arsenal manager, and he said, and I believe that our heritage story is very, very important. He said, one thing I've noticed with athletes, though, is that they don't respond well when older people necessarily come into a dressing room, so that when you talk about the ancestors, you actually have to present them as though they're the same age as they are. So, for example... With a Bobby Moore, obviously Bobby passed, but to have you know a, a very old English player come in and talk to the players, it doesn't quite have the same effect as if you can actually have a video of Bobby Moore at the same age doing something or talking. They, they, for whatever reason, is some psychology. Yeah. So, so it's a big part of the way we introduce ancestors is to make them the same age as they are, so that they connect in that way, and and always to make the ancestors real. So for Bobby, we don't regard him as a just as icon, it's more of the way he played, his mindset, his composure, his calmness. These are the things we like. And when, similarly, when I was 12, my tribe made a big deal about telling me about my grandmother five generations ago, a woman called Pakanui, who had the most incredible adversity in her life. From her tribe being massacred and her escaping through a third of our people being killed with smallpox and then influenza, um, through her being raped by European whalers twice. All of these things happened to her, then her land being taken away by the colonial government. 
but she was this charismatic, joyful matriarch. So they did a great job as well of explaining to me that we're resilient people. And if you understand that ancestor and her life story, you'll give you confidence that you're resilient. And I've, I've got an eight-year-old daughter and I've passed that down to her. So these are ways we transmit values, is that this is just a part of who we all are and things that we can aspire to, to live by. You say, um, talking about you as a 12-year-old and wondering if your son would do it too, you know, maybe it seems feels like quite an unusual thing to seek that out at that age, but mm. it, I think it's the way you describe it makes perfect sense. And I wonder if um, our listeners, like people who listen to The Ramble, listening to this, might feel a sense of belonging, maybe hearing that this is just, it's fine to want to belong to something. It's mm. fine. A lot of... Football supporting, I think, is around this sense of like, you know, mm. lots of people aren't really religious so much anymore. You know, they want to be belong to a tribe. Yeah. I suppose a, a football club as well has a very, very well documented lineage and, and, and heritage and, and really an us story. That's that's one of the really comforting things about supporting a club, isn't it? Mm. That it has a history that's was it's been around long before you were, that will exist long into your future. And there are different periods of your, t- of your life which are for which it's always been there as well. The international tournaments serve as quite often as markers in you, in your own adolescence and your your own your own adulthood, the whole period of your life. So I suppose that is a big, big part of that of the appeal of it as a fan, isn't it? It is that sense of belonging really to a tribe, and and there's a kind of there's a beauty to it really that I think is underestimated by a lot of people that don't necessarily connect with it. There's to me, beauty. it explains football culture really, and, and that's what I love about it. That's yeah. what attracts me. Yeah, you know, we. The the research is very, very clear that when you have that sense of being part of a community, a, a strong social connections, your mental health and physical cardiovascular health outcomes are just unbelievably better than when those things are lacking. Mm. And <clears throat> football, for me, and other sports provide that. It gives you a place of belonging, gives you a community. You know, to, to be deep about it, when we go into competition with a team, we know this will end in tears. <laughs> it will e- either end in us being so joyful because we've achieved what we wanted to achieve and we're just euphoric, or we'll, our hearts will be broken. And in order to go through that, same with your family, you know that, and that's the strongest community you, you, most of us we ever belong to, it will end in tears. <laughs> there will be tears. But the thing about it which gives you strength is you know that we're going to do this together. We're going to go through this together. We're going to have these amazing moments, but we will have each other's back when it doesn't go well. And and that takes courage. I actually think it takes a lot of courage to be a football fan because you are walking into grief as well as some lovely moments. And it takes a lot of courage to do it. It's actually better. Mm. To, it's, it's easy to avoid it. So the idea that you go into it, but that actually you're looking around and everyone with you, we're all in this together. No matter what, where the tears are coming from, we're going to share them together and then we're going to stay connected, and move on to the next one. I think it's a beautiful place to be as a person and I think it's a very healthy place to be. Mm. You work with um, corporate organisations as well, you know, work pla- more, more normal workplaces, you might say. And I wonder, I find that very interesting and I guess hopefully for our listeners as well, that I... I've worked for all sorts of people and in all sorts of strange places. Mm. And, you know, 
I felt reading this and thinking about these, you know, and I'd obviously recommend that everyone reads this book to get more more detail on this, but thinking about workplaces, you know, so often, Owen, you know, you must have seen, you've worked. Um, I, I said, in fact, when we first met that I felt like, you know, law firms are some of the most dysfunctional workplaces in the world, but you, you can correct me on that if you wish, because you were, of course, a lawyer. Um, but what do people do? Because this is about leadership. Lots of people listening won't necessarily be leaders or won't be in the position to be bosses, to be making changes. You know, often in workplace cultures, it can feel like bullies thrive. Narcissists have fucking got this. They, you know, they get to be a top dog. They create, um, you know, you talk about leading through fear. They get to create environments where they divide and conquer. And perhaps you're not busy scheming, but they are. And and I just, I don't know. Do you, do you have any tips? <laughs> I've got, I've got lots of tips. Um, well, let's reframe it a bit. Okay. Because, yeah, I, 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 I enjoy being a lawyer. I was a, yeah, I was a partner in a, a firm in the city here. And I had a bit of an accidental journey to become a coach. Um, so let, let, let's think about it slightly differently. I'm not trying to write off the entire legal profession. No, 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 so no, if no. we've got any li- lawyers no, listening, please weird. don't, you know, sue us. <laughs> um. So let's think about it differently. If I'm going to do some corporate coaching, which I do a bit of, then the starting point for me is energy. Okay? So like, what are you talking about? There's, there's no doubt that high-performing teams are teams which are able to generate good energy and sustain it. Low-performing teams are, are, are teams that have poor energy or whatever energy they have, they leak and lose it. So if we're thinking about what energizes people, that actually goes into a biological discussion around our hormones. Mm. People have best energy when they've got high levels of dopamine, which is that motivational hormone, and oxytocin, which is that hormone that we experience when we feel connected to people around us. That is the hormonal soup that we actually want to go for in a team. Now, you can motivate people, particularly in the short term, through fear, so cortisol and adrenaline. Yes, that's right. You can do that. But it actually leads to a lot of behaviours you don't want, people not being vulnerable, people shutting down, and obviously it is exhausting when you're motivated through cortisol and adrenaline. So when we look at a team that needs to perform over a sustained period of time, the better hormonal soup is dopamine and oxytocin. So how do we deliver that? Well, dopamine will come from us having a sense of identity and a vision of what we're actually trying to do together, mm-hmm. but also broken down so every individual has a sense of like personal meaning of why they're here and what they want to get out of it. Oxytocin obviously is reliant on us feeling connected with each other. So we need a caring leader for that, we need a leader who actually cares about us as human beings. We need people around us that we can trust and that if we, if we don't understand something, we can ask. Um, if we're but weak in a certain area, we can put a hand up and say, I, I, I think I need some help. So when we feel safe, psychological safety, for, then that oxytocin will be sitting there. So I, I've, yeah, I work with a real diversity of corporate leadership teams in the UK and the US, and no one has ever come back to me and challenged that simple idea of energy and the type of hormonal profile of our team. Mm. And then therefore, therefore, when we get bullying behavior, when we get intimidation, when we get um, people breaking trust, what it's doing is it's de-energizing us. It's changing the hormonal profile of our team into, a, into that stress cortisol adrenaline space, which is not optimal. 
And, you know, it comes back to the football team, if we want to talk about England, Gareth has done a sensational job of changing the hormonal profile of that team. And that is a direct line between that and performance. The ethos you're communicating is so kind of all-encompassing and um, beautiful and layered and nuanced. It seems like a bit of a, a trite thing to ask, but is there is there if you, do you have some central thing that you would just one thing you'd want people to take away from belonging or from this conversation today? Well, I my strongest reference point is family, and you know whether you're a parent now or you're. You know, you have parents, and we've all got different experiences of what family life is. But I, I find that is actually the ultimate group of human beings who uh, belong to each other. And if you think about a lot of behaviours we tolerate in a workplace or in a sports team that we would look at and go, mm, "I wouldn't actually want that at home." I, I'll give an example. You know, I remember a coach saying to me that. The team were not performing well, and the coach, his philosophy was that you've got to make it uncomfortable for them because the, comp- the, the, the competition, the games are very uncomfortable. So you've got to make it uncomfortable so that they learn to live with discomfort, which is sort of, I suppose, in a linguistic way might make some sense, but if you think about your family... What, as in, like, to model it? As in, yeah. like, you're going to experience discomfort when competing, so you should... Well, like their training week, the schedule was changed every day. Um, they would go and do some weird and wonderful things during the training week. People were walk coming into the car park stressed out because they didn't know what was going to happen. Um, but the, the coaching mindset was that was good because because once we get too comfortable, they're not going not going to deal with adversity on the field. But you think about I've got two young children. Just think about introducing that that life is uncomfortable. So. Should I prepare them by every single day we blow up the schedule? They don't know what's going on. They don't know what's going to happen next. The moment they start to look relaxed, then we throw something in there in order to you know, make them uncomfortable. I mean, that was complete madness, isn't it? We know that they're going to do their homework, be fit, healthy, have good relationships in a calm, composed, consistent environment. Well, that's the same with any human beings anywhere. So th- th- those ideas... So to answer your question, I think often back use a reference point of family as to whether some of these ideas or things that are done make any sense at all and and work back out from there. I'm not shy to use that. Oh, and thank you so much for this conversation. Um, I think after I finished reading Belonging, I felt I understood a lot more about why our national team is so much better now. Um, but also, you know, a lot more about life, which is kind of a, an achievement of some of the best books, right, Jim? Absolutely. Um, so thank you so much for coming in and um, and for sharing your experiences. Um, we really, really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for your warm, warm words around the book. I really appreciate it. Guys, Owen's book, Belonging, The Ancient Code of Togetherness, is out in paperback this Thursday, the 26th of May. So make sure you pre-order that one now. Or if you like a hardback, a nice shiny hardback, that is already out in your local bookshop. Or if you're buying online, why not check out hive.co.uk. Every order placed there supports independent local bookshops. Get in touch with what you'd like us to read next. I'm on at KVL Mason. Jim is... At Jim Campbell TFR. Or you can tweet us at football ramble and we'll be back next month with another great book from the world of football
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Football Ramble Presents is a Stack Production and part of the Acast Creator Network.